Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Thursday, November 7th. In today's news, former Twitter employees are charged with spying for Saudi Arabia. Democrats in Virginia are making big plans after their big wins on Tuesday. And deep brain simulation is being tested as a way to treat opioid addiction. But first, the big idea. President Trump wanted Attorney General Bill Barr to hold a news conference declaring that he had broken no laws during his phone call in which he pressured his Ukrainian counterpart to investigate a political rival. Barr declined to do so. The request from Trump traveled from the president to other White House officials and eventually to the Justice Department. The president has mentioned Barr's rejection to associates in recent weeks, complaining that he wished Barr would have held the news conference because it might have spared him some of the trouble that he's now experiencing with the impeachment inquiry. My colleagues Matt Zapatosky, Josh Dossi, and Carol Lennig broke this story last night, and it should be viewed as part of a pattern. In recent weeks, the Justice Department has been seeking to get a little bit of distance from the White House, particularly on matters relating to the burgeoning controversy over Trump's dealings on Ukraine. People close to the administration say Barr and Trump remain on good terms. But those close to the administration also concede that the department has made several recent maneuvers, putting it at odds with the White House at a particularly precarious time for the president. The request for the news conference came sometime around September 25th, when the administration released a rough transcript of the president's July phone call with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. By then, a whistleblower complaint about the call had moved congressional Democrats to launch the impeachment inquiry, and the administration was on the defensive. As the rough transcript was released, a Justice Department spokeswoman said officials had evaluated it and the whistleblower complaint to see whether campaign finance laws had been broken, but determined that none had been and decided no further action was warranted. It's not immediately clear why Barr would not then go beyond that statement with a televised assertion that the president broke no laws, nor was it clear how forcefully the president's desire that he have a news conference was communicated. A Justice Department spokeswoman declines to comment. From the moment the administration released that rough transcript, though, Barr has tried to project that whatever the president was up to, he wasn't a party to it. That's been hard, though, because the rough transcript shows Trump offering Ukraine's president the services of his attorney general to aid investigations of Joe Biden and his son Hunter. But a Barr spokeswoman says that Barr and Trump never actually discussed it. Barr, in particular, has similarly sought separation from Rudy Giuliani, the president's personal lawyer who's leading the efforts to investigate the Bidens. Giuliani yesterday hired a new team of defense lawyers for himself. Never a good sign when your lawyer has to get lawyers. People close to Barr assert that while he's a strong believer in the power of the presidency, he's always recognized there might be times when he has to try to preserve the Justice Department's independence, or at least the appearance of it. Apparently, he's finally reached his threshold. Trump had a famously dysfunctional relationship with his first attorney general, Jeff Sessions. The president blamed Sessions for special counsel Bob Mueller's investigation because in the president's view, Sessions' recusal from the case allowed for Mueller's appointment and everything that followed. It's not totally fair to Sessions, but the president believes it. Trump publicly and privately attacked Sessions for virtually his entire tenure in the top law enforcement job and constantly toyed with firing him. He finally did so right after the 2018 midterm elections and then nominated Barr as his replacement. 
Trump's resentment lingers to this day. And coincidentally, Sessions plans to announce later today that he will run for his old Senate seat in Alabama. The wild card in that race will be, of course, Donald Trump and whether he will weigh in against his former AG and in favor of other Republicans who've already announced their candidacies. The president has been discussing whether or not to attack Sessions with Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. McConnell has shared that he also has concerns about Sessions running because it could create a messy primary contest for a seat Republicans must win in order to hold their majority, realistically. Trump has repeatedly denigrated Sessions to allies and White House aides in recent days, and he seems eager to pop off, maybe on Twitter, or maybe somewhere else. Sessions has not spoken with either Trump or McConnell about his plans to run, but he's scheduled to appear tonight on Tucker Carlson's Fox News program, which he knows Trump's, Trump watches religiously, so that he can praise the president in an attempt to re-ingratiate himself. That's how politics works in 2019. In other impeachment-related news, House investigators yesterday released the transcript of acting ambassador to Ukraine Bill Taylor's deposition from a few weeks back. The top U.S. diplomat to Ukraine had what he calls a clear understanding that U.S. military aid for Kiev would not be sent until the country pursued investigations that would benefit Trump politically. Taylor described what he called a, quote, Washington snake pit of bad actors who were willing to cut off aid to Ukraine as it battled Russian-backed separatists a situation he describes as a nightmare scenario. The release of the transcript came as Democrats announced that the House will hold its first public impeachment hearings next Wednesday. Taylor will be the leadoff witness. The 324-page transcript that was put out yesterday offers a window into why Democrats believe Taylor, a West Point grad who was a decorated Army officer before going into the Foreign Service, will provide compelling testimony. He gave a meticulous accounting of texts, emails, and phone calls, and was also unsparing in his criticism of an effort he views as unethical, transactional, and un-American. George Kent, the Deputy Assistant Secretary of State responsible for Ukraine policy, will also testify next Wednesday. And Marie Yovanovitch, the former ambassador to Ukraine who was abruptly forced out when Giuliani pushed the president to do it, will testify two days later. Never a dull moment in Washington. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar. Number one, the Justice Department last night charged two former Twitter employees with spying for Saudi Arabia by accessing the company's information on dissidents who use the platform. This is significant because it's the first time federal prosecutors have ever publicly accused the kingdom of running agents inside the United States, which we all know they do, but it's the first time the U.S. government has publicly accused them of doing so. One of those implicated in the scheme, according to court filings, is an associate, a close associate of Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, who the CIA has concluded likely ordered the assassination of journalist Jamal Khashoggi in Istanbul last year. This case highlights the issue of foreign powers exploiting American social media platforms to identify critics and suppress their voices. It also raises concerns about the ability of Silicon Valley to protect the private information of dissidents who live in repressive countries. The charges filed in San Francisco came a day after the arrest of one of the former Twitter employees, Ahmad Abu Mamo, a U.S. citizen who's alleged to have spied on the accounts of three different users, 
including one whose posts discussed the inner workings of the Saudi leadership on behalf of the government in Riyadh. This guy's also been charged with falsifying an invoice in order to try obstructing the FBI's investigation. The second former Twitter employee who's been charged, Ali Al-Zabara, is a Saudi citizen who is believed to be in Saudi Arabia. He was accused of accessing the personal information of more than 6,000 Twitter accounts on behalf of the Saudis in 2015. Number two, a day after winning control of the General Assembly for the first time in a generation, Virginia Democrats are making big plans to use the new power that they will consolidate in Richmond under Democratic Governor Ralph Northam. Gun control in the home state of the National Rifle Association, passage of the Equal Rights Amendment in a legislature that is notorious for being run like an old boys club, climate legislation in a state once defined by coal. The wide open slate of possibilities carries danger, though, as the victors need to govern a state that still has veins of deep red. Don't let anyone tell you Virginia is blue. It is purple. Suburban districts tilted blue on Election Day because of strong dislike of Trump. But that can be fickle. Trump won't be around forever, after all. And the crop of new Democrats, far more progressive than their predecessors, could push the state too far to the left, only to lose it all with the next election. If a Democrat wins in 2020, there will also certainly be backlash in the 2021 elections. This enthusiasm from the far left could be a challenge for Northam, who nearly resigned earlier this year because of the blackface scandal. He was such a conservative that a decade ago, the Republican Party thought that they could woo him to switch parties. Meanwhile, in Kentucky, Republican Governor Matt Bevan is asking for a re-canvas of that state's election results, which show him trailing by more than 5,000 votes to Democratic challenger Andy Bashir. Bashir has begun his transition and is planning to announce members of his cabinet starting as early as today. Number three, a surgeon in West Virginia has implanted electrodes in the brain of a patient suffering from severe opioid use disorder. They're hoping to cure the man's intractable craving for drugs in the first such procedure ever performed. The device, known as a deep brain stimulator, is designed to alter the function of circuits in the man's brain. It has been used with varying degrees of success in the treatment of Parkinson's disease, dystonia, epilepsy, obsessive compulsive disorder, and even depression. It's seen as a last resort therapy after the failure of standard care, such as medication that reduces the cravings for drugs. The deep brain stimulator, which functions sort of like a heart pacemaker, was implanted at West Virginia University's Rockefeller Neuroscience Institute. The patient is a 33-year-old hotel worker who says he's been unable to remain sober for more than four months since he was 15 years old, despite trying a variety of medications and other inpatient and outpatient treatments. He's the first of four people in a pilot program, which aims to demonstrate that the technique is safe so that a full-scale clinical trial can be conducted. It's aimed at a small percentage of opioid abusers with the most treatment-resistant cravings for opioids, who may face a lifetime of overdoses, relapses, inability to hold a job, and other tragic consequences of addiction. The surgery took seven hours. Let's hope it sticks. And that's The Daily 202 for Thursday, November 7th. Thanks for listening. I'm James Holman. Have a great day. 
If you want to get more news about the impeachment inquiry, you can now subscribe to a new podcast feed from The Washington Post. All of our audio updates on the inquiry are in one place, including the latest from The Daily 202's Big Idea, Can He Do That?, and Post Reports. It's updated whenever news happens. You can subscribe at WashingtonPost.com slash podcasts. I'll talk to you tomorrow.